Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Trainer Talks and Tales. You are joined, as always, by me, Daisy, and you, Tess. Hey, Daisy. How was your week? My week was really good, thank you. I touched a few weeks ago on our adorable new penguin chick that hatched a few months ago, and I actually do have a little bit of an update. So we did get her DNA sample back that confirmed she was a girl, and she has recently been named Blueberry, which I think is adorable and really suits her personality. She is absolutely thriving in her habitat with the rest of the colony, and I'm really excited to see how she develops going forward, which is super exciting. Now, Tess, I am a little bit behind on my podcast this week, so I don't have any recommendations with that, but I did find and come across actually a quote that I thought I would really love to share. It's a great one and a reminder to pause, slow down, and reflect on your journey and just how far you've progressed. So the quote is, focusing on your career is worrying constantly about the next phase of your career without realizing that you've already made it to the position you used to look forward to. I love that. That's so good. Yeah. Often we always think the grass is always greener, but sometimes it's nice to reflect on what you have and how far you've come. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Tesla, how was your week? Yeah, really good. Thanks. Um, I've been busy as always, Daisy. <laughs> Uh, I had a great weekend in New South Wales uh, with some family and friends for a wedding. Saw lots of wildlife, so I'm buzzing from that. So it was it was wonderful. Good, good to hear. Tess, let's get into this episode as we have another great chat for you all. We chatted with Stuart McKenzie, who is the owner of a hugely successful business called the Sunshine Coast Snake Catchers. He is so passionate, and we really hope you enjoy this chat. Stu, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. We both crossed paths at Australia Zoo and seem to still, but maybe in slightly more fun social occasions these days. Now, before we get into our questions, we start every episode with a fast five. Are you good if we get straight into that? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Pizza or pasta? Uh, Pizza. Favorite invertebrate? Uh, Let's go octopus. Snakes or crocodiles? Oh, I've got to say snakes. <laughs> maths or science? Oh, I'm going to go maths. I'm pretty good at maths. Okay, and last one, favourite country to visit? Ooh, this meant to be fast, Joe. I'd say America, um, but I've got a list of countries which I'd love to visit, but I do love going back to America. Well done. I feel like uh, the pizza or pasta is the hardest question we've ever asked That is literally... Podcast. That's probably the hardest question I've ever been asked, I reckon, in an interview. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's like, like there's so things there that, oh. yeah, like pizza's <laughs> obviously, so many right. And I'd say I only went pizza because I usually get pizza more often than pasta. But then yes. if you ask me what I make at home, I, I make way more pasta at home. So I, I do. You might be overthinking the question slightly. <laughs> I know. I think I know. so too. 
All right, well, let's get into it. We'll uh, we'll discuss our pasta pizza. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> All right, well, Stuart, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, let's get into your questions. You are running a hugely successful business working with animals, but in a slightly different way to some of our other guests we've had on the podcast. Before we get into that, we'd love to know where your career with animals all started. Yeah, so... I guess you could probably go all the way back to when I first had uh, my first ever pets, which was actually two shingleback lizards. Um, so those two shingleback lizards, one actually is still alive today. So I think Whoa. it's going on 29 years old, um, which is pretty crazy. Um, they're actually named George and Martha. I don't know if you guys remember the Fat Hippopotamus TV show back in the day when we were kids. Yeah. Um, that's who um, they were named after. So I guess my fascination for animals and, and and reptiles in particular started then. I guess in terms of a career, that probably started when I went to university in Townsville and did uh, zoology and marine biology at um, James Cook Uni. And essentially after that, um, obviously it's a very difficult industry sometimes to get into, especially marine biology, and it didn't help that I also got seasick. So... Um, <laughs> I guess I was going to always go down the zoological um, direction and, and whether it was studying animals or working with animals. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't know what I was going to do outside of um, or after I finished university, rather. But I had um, family on the Sunshine Coast, so I had my auntie and a few uncles on the Sunshine Coast, and I gave it a shot and moved here and, um, yeah, started volunteering at Australia Zoo and uh, within two weeks got got the dream job as a reptile keeper and that's where it all began what a flex two weeks volunteering and then got a job <laughs> nice oh yeah it was um i know it's obviously not that easy for for many and many can volunteer um for months and months and months and never get a job but i think yeah everything just kind of worked out um there was a vacancy in the in the role and obviously you know worked as hard as i possibly could for that two weeks and had that experience of just coming out of uni and doing a bit of study around zoology and yeah I think everything just sort of fell in a line which was good yeah absolutely often it's about timing sometimes like you said you can be volunteering for a few months a year a couple of years a couple of weeks so yeah timing's everything and obviously you proved yourself well at Australia Zoo uh, what was your favorite part of that job I think my favorite part and probably what I miss about Australia Zoo is obviously working in a, a team on a day-to-day -day basis I guess what I do now it's more you sort of kind of do it by yourself or only with one other person but I miss that kind of team camaraderie and, and I guess working with such a huge collection so you know within the reptile department there was you know probably 20 or 30 different species of snakes there was tortoises there was alligators crocodiles you know, heaps of species of lizards, including Komodo dragons. So I think just working with such a, a large range of species as well is something that I miss. And I must say, I do miss um, doing the the shows in the Crocosseum as well in front of 5,000 people. That was, a, that was a buzz every time. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think anything can beat presenting to, you know, 5,000 people about wildlife, which is something that's very difficult to beat. Yeah, absolutely. And it's... I don't know, just those school holidays, um, days where, yeah, packed house and, and it gets your, and as you know, Daisy, it just gets your energy up as well. Like I think, yeah, no, nothing beats that, you know, feeding a crocodile in front of 5,000 people. Yeah, it's pretty hard to beat. 
Yeah, that's a very unique experience for you. But now you obviously run a hugely successful business called the Sunshine Coast Snake Catching. It's fairly obvious, I guess, what that business entitles. But do you want to give a briefly a brief, sorry, explanation on what it is that you do? Yeah, so essentially we cover now from North Brisbane all the way up to Noosa, out to Gympie, you know, Kenilworth, all those sort of random places, Woodford, out west and everywhere in between. Um, and we essentially are called upon by people in their homes or their businesses or people in public areas who either see a snake or want inspection done. And yeah, we essentially respond straight away and come out and do our best to try and catch and relocate that snake. Um, it is a 24-7 business, um, which obviously takes its toll and is it can be frustrating, but at the same time, yeah, I, I think I've personally got one of the best jobs in the world and, and I probably wouldn't change it for anything else. Um, but yeah, that's essentially what we do. Nice. And can you tell us a little bit more about how it started and how were you able to make it a full-time job? Yeah, so that was quite a journey um, in terms of when I first started at the zoo. I never really had a massive interest for snakes. Uh, it was more so on the lizard side of things. Um, but working at Australia Zoo, that quickly changed, uh, you know, sort of getting thrown straight in and working with non-venomous species essentially day one and then slowly starting to work with venomous snakes. But, excuse me, a lot of the guys who I worked with in the reptile department um, would catch snakes outside of work as a little bit extra income and obviously it's fun as well. So I found out about that and um, applied for my permit uh, through the government, got some little bit of experience and essentially started doing that as kind of like a little bit of a side hustle outside of the zoo because, you know, it's not a very high-paying industry working as a zookeeper and, you know, obviously trying to save for a house and buy a car at the time and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, money was pretty tight. So wanted to do it as a bit of a hobby and, and as a passion, but at the same time earn a couple extra dollars. So that's where it kind of started and I teamed up with a couple of local guys um, and helped them out with a bit of work as well which is really good, one of them being Richie Gilbert, who was the original owner of Sunshine Coast Snake Catchers. Richie and I sort of worked together for a couple of years and then we ended up going our separate ways just when um, I sort of did my own thing and, and kind of offered my own snake catching service uh, outside of work. Um, from there, my business grew and got to the point where it was borderline being able to do it full time, but not quite. Like it was always difficult for me. Uh, I probably could have left the zoo industry or committed full-time a fair bit earlier than I actually did. But, you know, there's always that nervous thing in the back of your mind when you're in an industry where you're relying on people randomly calling you and you don't know when work's coming in and quitting a full-time job to go do that. So that was quite, quite frightening. But in the end, I end up sort of um, chatting with Richie again. And um, at the time he was looking to get out of the industry just because of the tolls it takes you know, being a 24-7 snake catcher and he had a young family. So I ended up buying his business and then committing to full-time and joining the two businesses together, which was more than enough work for me at the time. And, and yeah, that's where the, the full-time snake catching sort of company began for me and, and full-time job. And since then, you know, I did it myself full-time, I think seven days a week, probably for two to three years. I then find, and, and with the help of some subcontractors, maybe five or six, and now it's kind of at the point where I've recently put two more people on full-time, which I'm sure we'll get to. And, um, yeah, on top of that, I've probably got now five or six full-time staff and then probably around 
30 subcontractors helping out from time to time. So, yeah, it's just it's chaotic now. <laughs> it's so incredibly inspirational and so impressive of how you've built a company pretty much from scratch and developed into how big it is today. And, and I remember when I was at the zoo still, that you would be on the book so occasionally. <laughs> We'd randomly have Stu come out like once every two months. He'd just pop his head in the love canal and be there to present and feed a croc and then we wouldn't see him for a couple more weeks. Oh, I used to get so much flack from the Reptile Boys because there's my name at the bottom of the roster every single week. It'd be like darked out because I'm not in that week. And yeah, that sort of went on for... Geez, how long was that? I reckon that went on for about five or six months where I'd occasionally come in or I'd say, no, not available. And, you know, I, I still, I think it was just hard for me maybe initially to let go because I had such and so many close friends at the zoo uh, and still do. I'm, I'm friends with a lot of them still today, which is great. Um, and a few of them work for me now. But um, so, yeah, I think maybe it was hard for me to get away initially and that's why I kind of just still bet um had my name on the roster but I'll never forget the day that HR rang me they're like hey Stu we haven't had you come in for like six months like what's going on did you are you still want your job or like you're welcome here anytime or I'm like oh no nah, let's just do it I'll, I'll send you an email with my resignation so <laughs> yeah I mean I can imagine it's it's definitely so hard to leave like not only a job that you love but you know the community of friends that you've built and the relationships that you have there so I can definitely appreciate that's a hard thing to move towards. But obviously, alongside catching and relocating snakes, a lot of your job is education. How important do you think education about and around wild snakes is? It's um it's massive, hey. And especially nowadays, like, you know, we we put so much emphasis into our social media pages. And, you know, I've got two full-time media managers now who essentially film everything, edit everything, run the social media pages just because of how important it is we've we've had a, a pretty big influx the last 12 months of people i guess either catching snakes themselves and getting bitten or people killing snakes unfortunately um, both of which are both illegal and and probably come down to the fact that <clears throat> these people lack the education around snakes so i guess yeah I, I, probably even more so on top of catching snakes for people our most important job now is is trying to educate the public because, yeah, I think I personally think it's beca- it's going to become more and more of an issue. People catching snakes, especially as money becomes tighter, because obviously this is our full time job. We charge a call out fee. Um, this is what we do for a living, and some people, you know, it, times are tough for some people, and they would rather take the risks and try and catch the snake themselves or try and hurt the snake rather than pay the fee, which is unfortunate. But yeah, that's that's why we put so much emphasis into that educational side of things so that that stops happening. Yeah. And I think you're, you've you got a bit of a battle because I, I do think we are in a current generation shift where people are understanding the more important role that snakes play in our ecosystems and how important they are as a species. But then exactly like you mentioned, we're also in a financial crisis a little bit at the moment, so the money's not getting spent on things like that, which is ending in disasters, like you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, and, and that's happened so many times where people actually ring us and they're like, oh, I try to move myself because the funds are tight, but then, you know, end up couldn't get out of the house and now it's in the kitchen, can you come get it? So it, it does happen fairly often and, you know, we're, we're here obviously to help, but at the same time we've got to cover our costs and and it's hard, like, you know, I've had situations where people ring us and, you know, one the other day, I'll use an example where a lady had a snake 
actually go up into her car and it sounded like it was a brown snake and you know she didn't have any money i think at the time she was actually staying in a car and i essentially said you know i'm happy to send someone over to at least have a look and you know we can charge just a minimum rate kind of thing or get the rescue crew there at some point or you know even though the other option was just stand back and the snake will eventually come out itself anyway hopefully and if it doesn't in a couple of hours call us back but I think thankfully the the snake actually came out itself because I didn't didn't receive a call back. But it's hard. Like it's you know on one hand you've got a business to run, you've got staff to pay, you got to worry about making sure that I can keep affording to pay my staff so that you know they've got money in their bank accounts to live and all that sort of stuff. But then at the same time you've got the the ever present battle of you know it's animals it's wildlife you know you should just care for them you should just do the right thing and you know and it's 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 like a balancing act which we're always um trying to uh, get correct i think it's important too that you said that sometimes with people doing it themselves they're actually probably going to make it worse and <laughs> usher it into a space that's going to be more difficult for the snake for you and that kind of thing so on that what is the wildest place that you've ever had to retrieve a snake from? Oh, you know, we you walk around your house, you walk around your yard, you look everywhere possible. We've caught a snake there, you know, like just to name a few. I've got one story which I'm going to tell, but just as a, a preemptor to that story, um, you know, we've caught obviously snakes in beds, under beds, in kitchens, refrigerators, up in cars, like you name it. We've caught it there. But I still think one of the best stories I've got is I received this call. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. This is pretty early on. So when I was happy to get out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning to um, go to a snake call, now I just hopefully send someone else if they answer their phone. But, um, yeah, so I went out to this job and, you know, it was a snake in the kitchen. I was like, sweet, all right, this should hopefully be an easy one, go back to bed. I get out there and there's no snake in the kitchen. And the people, it was pretty obvious they'd had a few drinks. And I was like, oh, please don't tell me this is going to be a prank or something like that. Um, and anyway, they're like, no, it went underneath the oven. It was one of those freestanding ovens. I was like, okay, what kind of snake was it? They're like, it was an eight-foot carpet python. And I'm like, okay, well, this can't really disappear. So pull the oven out, wasn't underneath it. And I was like, are you positive you've seen this snake? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got the screwdrivers out, started pulling apart the oven, took all the uh, the knobs and the turning things off the top, nothing there, took the back off it, nothing there. And I was like, where the heck is this snake? Anyway, so I take the side off. So on your standard oven, there's probably about an inch gap between um, the outside shell and then there's insulation and then there's the hot part. And in that inch gap, I kid you not, there was an eight-foot carpet python that squeezed itself in the side of an oven and was curled up in a perfect spiral. So when I pulled it off and pulled the side of the oven off, this huge python just popped out. And I was like, oh, my goodness. It was literally to the point where I was about to accuse these people of making it up. But um, (laughs) luckily I didn't. But, yeah, that's probably one of the um, the wildest stories I've I've had on where I've found snakes. Yeah, well, that's that's pretty impressive. I would never imagine an animal could squeeze into them, but I guess you've probably seen some snakes in some pretty tight spots around. Yes, even today, like we went to a place where they, a brand new retaining wall, uh, brick retaining wall, and the snake found the one tiny little gap to squeeze into, and we ended up having to knock one of the bricks off the top, and there he was, like literally just perfectly curled up in this tiny little pocket of this brick um yeah it's 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 crazy how a snake is comfortable to just squeeze through um the tightest areas like i get claustrophobic 
thinking of some of the areas that snakes put themselves in, it's just, it's insane. Not something that they struggle with, the claustrophobia. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've obviously recently made your business into a TV show, which is called The Aussie Snake Wranglers, which has been televised all over the world. My parents have watched it in the UK. Is there That's a lot of them. added pressure to an already fairly stressful or, I guess, dangerous situations when it comes to catching venomous snakes with the cameras being there? Or does it not make much of a difference to you being that you have so much experience with it? Um. I think initially there was pressure there where I was trying to find the balance of, right, I'm still offering a service here. I need to be professional. I need to catch the snake and um, relocate it. But at the same time, I've got to keep the camera crews happy. They've got to get their footage, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, definitely initially it was pretty nerve-wracking in terms of just getting that balance right. I think once myself and the and the crew plus um, the other guys on the show – once we kind of got in the swing of things, it, it worked like clockwork. And it was actually really, really good and and how we had it going where we could obviously catch the snake, offer the service, get all the shots we need all in a pretty quick time and then get out of the customer's hair just because, you know, you could tell sometimes when you're, when you're on site for an hour getting footage and, you know, getting some overlay stuff and interviews, it, it can be a bit much. But at the same time, some people loved it. You know, they loved the fact that there was a TV crew at their house and, they were going to be on TV and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think I think there was out of pressure, and there was obviously out of pressure to do your job well as you know as well, and you know not look like a fool on TV. Where there's there are a few moments in in a couple of the seasons which I look back on, and I'm like, Ugh. but at the same time, you know, we were younger then, and yeah, I might do things differently now. But at the same time, I'm sure I'll look back in five years' time and stuff I'm doing now and be like, oh, what are you doing? You know, so. You live and you learn, and I think overall it, it was it was quite successful, and yeah, it has been seen all around the world, and and continues to, which is really really cool, and hopefully keep making some more seasons if if we can, um, you know, get I guess get the uh, broadcasters on board. Yeah, we loved it. It's also so much more exciting to know the people on the show that you're watching. So I was like ah, the whole time. Um, and as for what you said before about going a bit oh when you watch yourself mate that's every that's every week for me on this podcast I say something like, oh god Tess no you guys are doing awesome uh, Tess like, comes out with some absolute clangers um anyway <laughs> on that what is next for you so you hope that there's more seasons what else um is in the future hopefully yeah, so I guess um a few big things happening I guess internally within the business so we've just put on Dan Rumsey is a general manager, which is really cool. He's into, I think he's about week seven or week eight. So he's really getting a hold of how everything works. And I think he's understanding that it's a bit more hectic than maybe it seems from the outside. But no, I, you know, there was no, no issues ever or no doubts me putting Dan on. He's, he's a legend in the zoo industry. I know you guys had a podcast with him and it was a great podcast. He's, he's a great person and, um, and an even better leader and worker. So. Yeah, no, so Dan's just started, so that's really exciting. So just getting him into the swing of things. Brandon Gifford as well is just starting next week, actually, so that's really exciting. And, yes, yeah, so he's going to be covering a lot of the Morton Bay areas. So just, yeah, some things happening um, internally, which just getting the guys running and, and trying to boost our social media output and our educational um, output as well through our channels. Um, in terms of the TV show, we are pushing for a season four. So season three has been filmed. It just hasn't gone to air yet, which we don't know when that's going to air, which is 
little bit frustrating too. There's um, a lot happening in the TV industry and the media industry at the moment where big companies are taking over other big companies and, yeah, it's, it's honestly all over the shop. So we don't know what's actually happening with season three and when it's going to air, but I'm sure it will eventually. So, yeah, I think pushing for season four, but we're also looking at maybe um, a show uh, revolving around Venom, which would be quite cool. So that, yeah, I'm hoping to kick that off maybe early next year. And then we're looking to my dream, I guess, all along has been has been to be able to film and travel. And um, I'm hoping that that may happen next year as well. So a few things on the cards, nothing in, um, in solid concrete yet, unfortunately. But with, you know, as you guys know, like you just got to keep pushing and, and keep asking the questions and, you know, trying to get things over the line because if you don't, you know, you'll just fall into um, a bit of a slumber and, and nothing will go ahead. So, yeah, it's always about pushing and there's always disappointments ahead, but hopefully more exciting times. Yeah, well, it sounds like you have some incredibly exciting things coming up for you, which is great. And and I also realised, as you were saying, that we're kind of working our way through all of your staff on our podcast because we've got Adele and Mick coming on soon and we've spoke about definitely getting Giffo on the podcast too. So, yeah, some, some good people you have working for you, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so lucky in the fact that a lot of the people that work for me are either gained a lot of experience through the zoo industry so it's kind of really trusted in experience in terms of venomous snake handling and and just general knowledge around snakes and and the animals that we deal with and yeah the fact that obviously a lot of these guys are my mates as well um so yeah which is good for me i trust them and and um yeah i, I to be honest like it's it's i can't even really think of like a bad employee or a bad contractor that i've that I've had work for me. Um, I've been pretty lucky. That's so good. And that actually works really well as we were about to get into the questions that we have from our socials or from the listeners. And the first question yep. is, how do you manage a team who is mostly mates? And what are some of the challenges that you can face with that? Yeah, it certainly is. Um, that's a great question because I think, yeah, you've got a line there where, you know, you don't obviously want to upset them. You know, you don't want to be, I guess, the token boss and or the token grumpy boss or something like that and come across as, you know, micromanaging or anything like that where, you know, in the back of your mind, anything you do could potentially affect your friendship. And I guess that's a balancing act. But <clears throat> I guess there's like when you find people – you know, like your Dan's and like your Giffos and, and even Heather, who's been full-time for me for a few years now. And, um, you know, there's that mutual respect. And I think if they do something wrong or if there's something I want done differently, I'll just tell them. And if there's something that they're not happy with, they just tell me, you know what I mean? And and I think it's it's really great how it continues to work. And it, but, but, yeah, it's, it's a balancing act as I move forward and um, but I think the best thing about it is, yeah, I know them. The fact that once they start catching for me, I already know their experience. So often I've seen their experience firsthand or I've worked next to them um, when they've been handling or wrangling venomous snakes. So, yeah, that for me, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather hire someone I know that's got experience any day of the week, I think, than someone that I have no idea about but has, you know, a crazy good resume. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's... Um... A good way to put it too it's hard to balance it but um it's inevitably at the end of the day communication 
it's got to be clear and you've just got to navigate it that way. And you mentioned that it was kind of cool for people to have that experience in the zoo industry. But one of the questions we had from our listeners were um, any advice for getting into snake catching experience for someone wanting to get into it? So without necessarily going through the zoo industry. Yeah, we, um, that's a great question as well, just because we actually get asked that probably weekly, I reckon, by um, young men and women or boys and girls who are really keen on getting into the industry. Um, to be honest, it's, it's, it's one of the hardest, I reckon, industries to get into um, just because, I, and the reason I say that, and I don't say it lightly, is just because I know what I've had to do over the last 10 years to, like, get to this point. And, you know, I got lucky along the way in terms of being able to buy a business and, and grow my business up to the point where I could afford to maybe buy that business and combine them. And, and you know, I, I know that snake catchers can be quite um, defensive, I guess, of their areas or their zones or, or whatever. Like I tend not to be kind of like that I used to be and it used to like drive me crazy in terms of like oh my goodness where's my next job coming from oh why is that snake catcher catching here and that's my area but in the end like nobody has an area you know anybody can open up a snake catching business on the Sunshine Coast tomorrow if they wanted to it's just about whether they got the the drive to be able to push it to be able to get it to the point where they can do it as a job and I think the best piece of advice is yeah one try and get experience now that often does mean having to work at a zoo or volunteer at a wildlife facility um, the other option is is teaming up um, with someone who's got a heap of venomous snakes as pets or even just snakes in general and try and gain some experience that way um, there's also day courses that you can do um, in venomous snake training and, and handling i think they're a little dangerous in the fact that often you can just do that and then go and apply for your permit which to me blows my mind. Now, that might sound a little bit hypocritical because that's basically what I did at the start. <laughs> but I also had, you know, a full-time job working with snakes and venomous snakes where I kind of didn't do anything crazy in the snake catching industry until I had that, you know, venomous snake handling um, experience at the zoo, although I still made a fool of myself a few times early on. Um, but, yeah, I think... It's such a hard industry to get into. And call your local snake catcher. See see if they're happy to have you around with them. Like a lot of snake catchers are reluctant because we are so busy and, you know, we're managing staff and our business. But, yeah, I guess just give it a go. It's Just be careful, though. Like we're not dealing with um, puppy dogs and stuff like that. That You know, in saying that, dogs can bite. Anything can bite, I guess. But, um, you know, snakes are dangerous animals when you try and catch them. So. Yeah, definitely. And it sounds like maybe one of the best things to do is to reach out to a snake catcher and try and gain some advice from them and the next kind of steps to go forward. And then finally, the last question we had was obviously always give a snake catcher a call if you do come across a snake in your house. But do you have any other tips for someone that might come across a venomous snake or a non-venomous snake in their house? Yeah, definitely. I think, like, to be honest, a lot of it comes down to common sense and it'll blow your mind some of the people that ring up and they're like, yeah, there's a snake in the yard oh my goodness you know like what do i do what do i do like my dog's near it, blah 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 and it's like well can you just grab your dog and bring it inside and they're like oh yeah i suppose i can and i'm like oh what if he gets back outside and it's like we'll just shut the door you know like i feel like when people see a snake sometimes like common sense just leaves their brain which you know i it's hard for me to 
you know, comment on that because I'm comfortable with snakes. Like even um, you guys are comfortable with snakes, so it's probably hard for us to comment and put ourselves in those people's shoes. But I guess it's just trying to calm down, common sense, get people, pets, kids away from the snake and then kind of take a breath and then come up with a plan. You know, if it's in your house, you've probably got no choice but to get it relocated by a professional. Um, you know, you can try and isolate it in a bedroom or shut the door, put a towel under the door, that sort of thing. If it's re- if it's a big brown snake just cruising around the lounge room in the house, just literally lock all the doors of the house and lock it inside. You know, it's the brown snake's house until a snake catcher arrives. But, you know, if it's outside, that's where you have a choice, you know. Once all the pets and people are removed from the situation, you can just wait and see if the snake moves on. You don't actually have to pay for a snake catcher to come out. Obviously, if the snake seems like it's hanging around, that's when, you know, you might need to initiate a snake catcher or just give it time and see if it moves on. But, yeah, the main, like, the, the, the big no-nos are obviously approaching the snake, trying to hurt the snake or trying to catch the snake because that essentially accounts for 95% of people who get get bitten and end up in hospital or even dying. So, Stuart, it has been incredible having you on the podcast and sharing all your knowledge and how you got into the industry and you are obviously so passionate about snakes, so it's great to hear. So thank you so much for your time. We all really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Wow, that was another great episode. Being that we're both bird and mammal gals, I found it interesting to talk about snakes and learn a little bit more about reptiles and expand our knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. We hope you all also enjoyed the episode and we look forward to chatting to another guest next week. Bye. See ya.